All right. Welcome to Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Ryan Stelzer. He's a management consultant, executive coach, entrepreneur, and author who co-founded Strategy of Mind to build high-performing human teams. Ryan's also served at the White House as a presidential management fellow during the Obama administration, where his team was responsible for improving and sustaining high levels of performance across federal agencies. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. And so before we begin, I wanted to read a quote from Ryan's website. So something is out of whack and our friends eat an increasingly algorithm, 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 wow, ruled organizations. In the pursuit of success, we've lost what matters most in attaining that success. The sense of trust between people that enables the building of collective values that lead to financial performance. In short, numbers are killing us. Valuing performance statistics and the bottom line above all creates dehumanized, hyper-competitive work environments that are destructive for organizations as a whole and literally life or death for individuals. According to research, work is one of, if not the greatest source of anxiety, depression, and stress-related disorders in all types of workplaces, from call centers to head fund, man to head fund managers to doctors. So Ryan, what was so important for me about that was the fact that as a psychotherapist, a lot of times when I deal with my clients, they really, I would say probably something along the lines of 60 to 70%, they come to me for work-related distress. And so the way our kind of companies, from my perspective, are, struggled, are structured in America is that you kind of have a place that's pretty, like you said, hyper-competitive. And it's a place that doesn't really value in the individual as much as it does like their productivity or what they can produce in terms of the numbers for the company. So when you were looking to start, or when you, and obviously Dr. Brandell, when you guys were looking to found strategies of mind where um what was it like kind of exploring some of these holes in these companies and how did you kind of think of solutions at that time it, it's it's a great question and um you know again thank you for having me it's great to be here with you guys talking this through uh, it's, it's it's always a treat to speak with folks who uh, sort of get it right away um you know it's an easier process and then having to justify what we do it's great to just sort of jump right in so um when we yeah when we got started i was working in in a very traditional consulting setting um and a friend sent an article to me that said business leaders would benefit from studying great writers. It was a piece in The Economist. I read it at my desk. It's sort of uh, light switch went off. And referenced in the article was this guy, David, who happened to be in Boston. We connected and we met and we started talking about some of the things we were seeing. And we both had humanistic backgrounds. Yeah, sure, we were in professional fields. Now, David in medicine, myself in business, and we had sort of gone uh, our separate professional paths, but we had that, that common humanistic background. And we were seeing that there was an absence of humanism in professional life. And we thought maybe there's an opportunity to, to sort of re-inject the professional world with that sense of um, people matter. Uh, it's sort of crazy to think that, geez, it's important. You know, people are important in a company because uh, without people, you don't have a company. So what we were, you know, what we got to talking about was how, geez, the skills that it takes to be successful. It's sort of like the famous book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. The skills that it takes to be successful in the professional world are often... Um, skills that you develop as a as a student of of the humanities or student of just sort of of um even the social sciences you're talking about dialogue and and strategic thinking and communication and um having the ability to understand what's going on in the mind of your customer or your colleague and you know these are things that you're not necessarily taught in an mba program um but we thought there's a way to get these these skills into the professional world uh through um the back door if you will what kind of skills are we talking about uh when like what would be a good skill that maybe um someone could use to foster more of a sense of uh, unity in a, in a corporate environment yeah that's a great question the the greatest skill that i think we could talk about right now as far as qualitative versus quantitative so the greatest qualitative skill would probably be this term psychological safety um, psychological safety was, uh, has been studied for a number of years now. Google did a famous report on this in Project Aristotle where they looked at um, what it took for a team to be successful. So what, what were the components of their high-performing teams? And they studied this for a couple of years. They had a, Google being Google, they had a whole you know, data center set up around this. Um, and they looked at, geez, why were our, our top-performing teams the top-performing? And what they, their hypothesis originally was that the top-performing teams were the result of sort of like casting. They thought, well, if we put an uh, introvert with an extrovert, that'll be, that'll go well. If we put an experienced person with an inexperienced person, that'll help. So we're going to, we're going to force the pieces together and have sort of yin, yin and yang with our team members. And that's going to, that's going to complete the perfect uh, puzzle. And what, in their words, they found is that they were dead wrong. 
And the only thing that really ultimately mattered on team performance, there were a couple of other factors, but the, 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 the bottom line issue, the, the core issue of team performance came down to this idea of psychological safety. And psychological safety is the idea of um, being feeling comfortable or safe to share ideas without judgment or reprisal from the group. So you can probably imagine the spaces that you've worked in the past where it wasn't psychologically safe, where you're sitting in that meeting with your team and you did not want to raise your hand or you didn't want to jump in with that idea because you were afraid of being made fun of or mocked or ignored or um, what have you. And chances are you can probably think of some of the better places you've worked and there are places where you do feel um, safe to share your ideas and that you can sort of uh, spitball ideas with one another and, and, and engage in the creative process. And so uh, Google's research and a number of others, uh, Amy Edmondson at Harvard right now, she's uh, probably the leading uh, force in psychological safety at the moment, um, have found that really it is the key ingredient to a high performing organization is that if you have psychological safety. So that I would say is the biggest qualitative skill you can develop. And then of course we can get into how to develop it, but um, you know, that that's that's the that's the piece of that's like the biggest piece of the puzzle yeah and in terms of communication it also seems like obviously there's kind of um so um, i'll just kind of give an example to make it a little bit more clear so i had a session with a client the other day and so she was telling me you know essentially kind of in our company what it seems like is for the most part because it is sort of structured like a bureaucracy for the most part i mean like sort of messages get lost um sometimes messages get miscommunicated in translation and then you have the people of kind of at the top tier of the company they're essentially sort of blaming everybody else on the bottom so they would be saying like hey like you know we have these expectations for you guys like why aren't you you know performing up to your standards or whatever and then so like my client like a lot of her co-workers they kind of feel dejected and they feel really badly and they think well you know i was literally doing the best i can with the information i received and it's like a lot of times because the bosses are stressed out or whatever they don't really want to hear it. they're like well you know like these are the expectations and then the kind of the battle back is that like yes we understand that these are the expectations however what would you like us to do with information that either isn't clear or isn't communicated so yeah. i wonder ryan from your perspective do you find that maybe it's because as um let's say kind of the the what would you call it sort of uh, maybe the, the kind of breadth or the depth of the company makes it difficult to communicate? Or um, I guess the question is, do you find that the communication is like for a lot of these corporations, like communication is one of the major barriers to success? So we always laugh because whenever we're on the phone with somebody for the first time and we ask them, so what are some of the pain points that you're experiencing in your company? Um, the first response is always, well, it's totally different here. It's, it's, we're not like any other organization. The problems that we're having are completely unique. And of course, they're not unique. They're probably pretty similar to what we see at other companies as well. But we just say, oh, okay, so tell me some more. And invariably, invariably, the one thing that always comes up is communication. That that word appears in every, every single conversation we have. And any company, any business, organization, nonprofit, um, uh, healthcare, I mean, it, it, everybody can do better at communication. It doesn't matter if they're the top performing, most psychologically safe or the least psychologically safe. There's no question that everybody can do better, um, our, ourselves included. We can always, you know, always do better communicating. But it's funny how that phrase is one that appears in every single you know, client conversation we have. Um, it's tricky because Communication can mean a lot of different things at different organizations. Um, some people view communication as being, I get too many emails. Other people mean think communication means that, um, that my, my boss talks to me instead of with me. Um, uh, there's no dialogue with my colleagues. Uh, it can take a lot of different shapes. And it's not necessarily the fault of, you know, we, we have a tendency to think that, Oh, this place is like this. It's not a communicate. It's not a. It's not a, uh, a communication-heavy environment. So think about it this way: If you were a new employee going into a company and you were sitting there next to somebody who'd been there for five or ten years, they'll probably tell you what it's like here. Like this is what it's like here, and they'll say things like, "Oh, geez, it's not. You know, people don't really talk here. It's not that kind of place. You know, it's not that kind of environment. Or maybe it is." Um, and the fact of the matter is, you actually have agency and to change the environment that you're working in. Um, and that, that type of environment, it's not, it's not instilled in the company's, you know, um, founding principles, like a company that doesn't communicate today can be a, com a communicating company tomorrow because mm -hmm. the people there can make that, that choice to communicate better, or they can work on those skills. So it's not something that's like set in stone at an organization, like, oh, my, my place of work is not a, uh, psychologically safe environment. It's not, it's, you know, it's not, um, um, 
it doesn't value dialogue. Well, that can change by individuals. It doesn't always have to come from the top down. There's a tendency to say, oh, well, it's the, you know, it's the tone set by the CEO or it's the tone set by the senior managers. And that's true to a certain degree. Yes, of course, that is, that is, they are partly responsible, but everyone's responsible for, you know, communications a two way street. So if, if, um, if the team is communicating better, chances are the CEO will start to communicate better and vice versa. That's interesting. Yeah. If somebody is actually exercises their own agency and becomes more at the cause of their interactions, as opposed to the effect, they don't feel like they're just in reaction to everything that's happening. They can sort of set their own sort of pace and actually encourage more dialogue. For instance, maybe um, there's this, I mean, I'm not into hypnosis or anything, but there's this uh, principle in hypnosis um, to always go first. Like you have to sort of hypnotize yourself and then try to hypnotize the client mm -hmm. in that sense. I mean, if you want other people to be vulnerable with you, you'd probably have to go first and be vulnerable yourself. Mm -hmm. Or if you want people to have a sort of a jokey vibe with you, maybe you'd start to throw out jokes first mm -hmm. or social, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. It's like you're sort of just, um, you're influencing the environment by sort of being the first cause. Yeah. You don't have to be at the effect of everything. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that, that's, that's very, that's very mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, yeah, Ryan. You, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, is that something that you found in these companies too? Yeah, exactly. If you're, if you're sitting there, you know, at home talking to your roommates or your spouse or friend, you know, and you're saying, geez, you know, I, we just, we have such a terrible communication problem at my place of work. Instead of going in the next day and expecting it to change or hoping that it will change, there's maybe there's some steps that you can take to actually enact the change, you know, think about, well, all right you know, look, it's, I'm not going to solve the communication challenges of, of this organization by myself, but what are the things that I can do to try to make a positive impact here? And maybe that's, um, you know, engaging in conversation with the peer or s setting up a, uh, a weekly conversation with your manager or what, you know, whatever that looks like can take a lot of different shapes. But um, at the end of the day, you have agency to enact a small slice of that change. And then hopefully it will be a ripple effect, you know, and you can, you can just continue to spread that, um, that sense of, of dialogue throughout the organization if, if communication seems to be the struggle. Right. And a problem that I keep encountering with my clients is that a lot of them, I mean, which I think is pretty obvious to most of us, is that they're afraid to kind of speak out at work, especially when it comes to speaking up to their bosses. So um, I actually find it really hard to kind of give them advice on that, because obviously there's always the risk of getting fired or being punished in some sort of more indirect way. So Ryan, how would you kind of help that situation if somebody is struggling to speak out? Yeah, no. So do not go into the boss's office and put your foot down and say, we need to communicate better. And here's how I'm going to, because that's not good communication. That's not effective <laughs> communication. Um, I think, look, there's a reality that certain people might not be able to change the environment around them uh, beyond a certain degree. So the classic example, we talk about this in our book, that the, the, the factory worker at Amazon probably isn't going to change Jeff Bezos's culture. I can't imagine that's going to happen. Maybe it will, but if enough factory workers, but I don't, I just don't see that happening. Um, so, but there's a thing that they can, you know, there's a, there's steps that they can take uh, within their environment to maybe make their immediate surroundings, um, you know, a, a more psychologically safe or, or what have you. Um, and ultimately look, it, there's, there's a reality where some companies might not be receptive to change in any way, shape or form. And uh, you can vote with your feet and leave, or you can, there's also the harsh reality for some folks who just don't have that opportunity to be able to leave. So um, they stick it out and, and that's okay too. Um, there's, there's, there's strategies there as well for, for you know, staying, staying on site uh, in a place that's really, really not reluctant to change. Uh, excuse me, that is, that is really reluctant to change. Um, but for those who, who actually can maybe move the needle and are fearful though of marching into their boss's office, yeah, I wouldn't march into the boss's office, but um, just think about, well, what is something that you can do to build a sense of trust between those around you? So what's something that you can do if, if trust, you know, if on a scale of zero to 10, if trust between you and your boss or trust between you and your colleague is at a one or a two, what's something that you can do to get it to a three? Not, not to a nine, what can you do to get it to a three? And then, you know, next week, maybe you can get it to a four. Um, so I would say it's baby steps and it's really incremental in that sense. You want to just, you're, you're chipping away at something. You're not just trying to, uh, you know, eat the entire, the entire pie. It's one slice at a time. And so the, the, it, let's, you know, for example, let's say it's, uh, I don't communicate well with my boss. We have terrible communication. Um, well, 
in what ways do you communicate currently? You, know, you can start by engaging an active inquiry with yourself and asking these open-ended questions like, okay, well, what are the things that we're doing now to communicate? Um, well, we have a monthly meeting. Okay, um, is there an opportunity to meet with the manager um, more frequently? Or is there maybe a weekly check-in via email or you know, little things that you can do to just sort of move that needle along? Um, nothing that's extremely disruptive or certainly not disrespectful or anything that would be grounds for termination. But I can't imagine, you know, asking a manager for five minutes of time, you know, around lunch once every two weeks would be grounds for termination. So you do things that are um, difficult. Absolutely. I mean, actually think about how much courage it would take for somebody to go up to their manager who they don't have a great relationship with and saying, hey, can we just grab lunch, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks or, you know, check in uh, every, every now and then um, that takes a lot to do that. Um, but ultimately you do have the agency to do that. And what you're doing, asking to go out to lunch or asking to have a conversation with them uh, on a scheduled basis, isn't grounds for termination. There's nothing there that would be disrespectful or egregious. So um, it's, it's trying to find those little things that you can do to just move the needle incrementally along the way. Yeah, of course, exercising certain um, conversational skills, like, for example, actually actively listening to someone, right? A, a yeah. lot of people, what they're doing, they're always waiting for their chance to, to talk, right? They, they want to just contribute what it is they had in their mind waiting, you know, to give that answer, or, or, they, or they have like a taker's mentality. Uh, they, they're just about, you know, what can I get from this conversation as opposed to, you know, what can I contribute, right? And when you take that attitude, I noticed... Uh, when, you, when you're seeking more to contribute, to really listen to the person, it kind of lets um, their own guard kind of go down and you start to establish more rapport and that could lead to more trust, um, I think. Hey, absolutely, yeah, no question. And so, you know, for example, uh, our, the, the step-by-step process that we use is we call it Think, Talk, Create. And uh, that's actually the title of our book, which will be coming out next year. But so Think, Talk, Create really is that methodology to engage in active inquiry. And active inquiry is the process of, of like you said, <clears throat> you know, being present, um, having a clear mind, actively listening and, and you know, um, using open-ended questions, having a conversation, and then creating something as a result of it. So um, the, that, that sort of that practicum of think, talk, create can be applied in situations where you're going into that manager's office for the first time saying, hey, we got to come up with a solution for next quarter or else we're going to be in deep trouble. Um, so let's practice the think, talk, create process. So, you know, think is really, you, ha you have to really calm your mind. You have to be in a clear state. You have to maybe take some deep breaths and just be present and be ready and, and, and have that, um, that thought process uh, um, organized in, you know, in between your ears. And then the talks that, you know, the talk process is going in there and like to your point, not waiting to speak, but actually listening to what they have to say, asking questions that, that aren't closed-ended. Closed-ended questions are things that are, that for the response to be yes or no. Open-ended questions require um, it, just debate and discussion and, and, and further explanation. So for example, if I asked you, um, did you get that report done? The answer would be yes or no, as opposed to, oh, what are the, some of the things you're finding in your report? That requires you to elaborate in your response. And that's a great way to build psychological safety because you're in, you're having these trusting conversations with your peers. And then, so you've, you've done think, you've done talk. And then after you go through the talk phase, um, you move on into create. And that's when you start to build the solution based on the thought process and the dialogue process that you've just had. So think, talk, create, and it repeats itself. It's great because once you've done it, then you can do it again. So it's this repetitive cycle of think, talk, create, think, talk, create, think, talk, create. And that's sort of the, um, the one, two, three that you can do as you move, you know, as you, as you move, as you move the needle in your, in your company. Yeah. And so the interesting thing is uh, kind of going back to sort of the breadth of these companies. So a lot of times I find that when it comes to these companies, I mean, I think most of us would agree. I mean, they are like notoriously big, right? Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, when capitalism or the idea of it was founded by Adam Smith, right, there was also a thing as big corporations. And the way that companies were envisioned or businesses rather were envisioned was that they were going to be like these small clusters or these small groups. Of, yeah. You would have like these owners and then they would have apprentices and then the apprentices would go off and found their own businesses. 
And so a lot of times what happens, I think, is that when people get into, um, when there's sort of these struggles in these companies or like these difficulties, or um, let's say, I don't know, there's these really big business ventures. A lot of times these managers, they don't sit down with their employees to figure out like what the issues are. So again, going back to that client and saying that, well, you know, like these are the expectations you have to get it done from her perspective, right? She's like, I understand that these are the expectations, but what you're not like caring about at the moment is that the reason why I'm not meeting the expectations it's not because I'm lazy or I'm like off doing whatever and like hanging out is because like I'm not getting the necessary information. So I wish there was a point where like a lot of these managers would be able to sit down with these different employees and just to say like, hey, like what's up? Like what's going on? Right. Um, we know I've, we had these conversations, you know, maybe several months ago or whatever. And, you know, we talked about like what the guide was and, you know, you seem to have like really grasped it and grasped it really well. And so like what happened? Because you seemed really enthusiastic about it. Right. And then maybe the employee would say, well, you know, here's what's going on. I thought I was getting good information. And then it kind of came back and, you know, there was some miscommunication or whatever. But the interesting thing, or I guess the really unfortunate thing is a lot of times it doesn't happen. And I know, Ryan, you speak a lot about kind of um, Danny Kahneman and cognitive biases. And so from my perspective, I mean, I'm probably wrong on like a grand scale, but I do find this happens too often. I think a lot of times managers come in with the bias of, well, these people are lazy and I have to kind of, yeah. Right. And I have to crack the whip on them. Right. So it's like if they knew what I was already telling them and they understood like what they were supposed to do and they're not doing it. It's not because there was some sort of issue that came up. No, no, no. It's because they're lazy. They're inconsiderate. They're not sort of careful or whatever it is. Right. But the interpretation is automatically now I have to be upset with this person because they're not doing the right thing, whereas, you know, they're supposed to or they could. Is that something you find, too? Yeah, it's funny. One of my younger cousins is in college and we were talking about his workload and he said something about, oh man, you just don't get it. It's just so crazy. And I wanted to say to him, you know, I was in college too. Like I, I, I did do it before. Like I know that I, I wasn't born at, in, the, in my 30s. Like I've, I've, I've actually done something before this. And it's, it's, you see something similar with managers. It's like, you know, the, the, um, the idea that your team needs to have the, the whip cracked, so to speak, um, you were an individual contributor before you were a junior employee, you were, a, a, you know, an entry level associate at one point, were you lazy? And that's why you saw so this is a projection that you're making on your team members or, um, you know, what is this sort of sense that, oh, I need to always stay on top of them because they're, um, they're always falling behind the eight ball or, you know, there's probably some larger issues at play if the constant mindset you have is I need to always stay on top of these people. Either you're terrible at hiring and you hired the wrong group of people, um, or this is there's some other factors at play cognitively going on where you you um, are posturing and positioning yourself as the savior and you're the only one who's going to be able to get this done and and uh, and uh, and it's 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 all on you to to accomplish this task. Maybe there's a trust issue. I mean, there's a lot that could you could unpack there. But ultimately, I think as a manager, there I, we were talking earlier about the, the sort of anyone having agency to enact um, um, a psychologically safe environment and practice think talk create, and that's true. But it's more so on the manager to be able to do. I mean, they they should be able to do this better than their team members, and they should be the ones leading the charge for sure. Um, because I mean, think about it this way: if if you're a entry level associate at a company and you're trying to bring think talk creator active inquiry and building psychological safety in your workplace, um, it's going to take you a lot longer than it's going to take the CEO to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, managers have a tremendous responsibility. And but what we found actually, to be honest, is that that um, that sense of, oh, I got to crack the whip. I got to stay on top of everybody. I really have to, you know, bear down. It, it generally isn't at the top of the organization. It seems to be sort of middle management that has that problem. I don't, I haven't really experienced it with C-suite. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure what, maybe because they're, you know, they're not, they're not in the trenches, so to speak, but mm-hmm. in large organizations, I really haven't found CEOs. I mean, they're tough and they're, and, you know, they certainly stay on top of their team, but they're not, having to really have remedial conversations or all, you know, they're not always saying like, geez, my team's inept. Um, It it doesn't, it doesn't have that, that, that sound. It's uh, those type of uh, sort of the office space environment that you see, like the cliche from the movie, like that's, that typically tends to, you experience that with middle management folks who maybe are trying to impress someone above them. Mm -hmm. Um, And when in writing the book, when we were talking, when it's funny, when we were, when we wrote about all of these examples of, dehumanization in the workplace of people being bad actors 
absolutely no question that senior management and CEOs set policies and procedures and practices in place that would allow it to happen. And they enabled the thing, they enabled it to happen. But the, the actual folks who were carrying out the dehumanizing actions were generally middle managers. So uh, we talk about a story in the book where this is true. There was a, uh, a large organization and they was a, it was a small company that was bought by a larger company. And when the large company came in, they said, our policy is that you can't have any personal items on your desk. So no photos, no sweaters on the back of your chair. No red staplers. Nothing. Yeah, no red staplers. Exactly. <laughs> nothing. You can have nothing personal on your desk. So um, the, the, the corporate office was in a major city away from the small town where this office was located. And folks generally abided by the rule. But like, you know, a lady had a picture of her kid on her desk, a uh, small one, um, Somebody had a, you know, their sweater or whatever that someone would have maybe a sports calendar with their favorite team. And one night, um, managers from corporate flew in and they went into the office and they swept all of the items off the desk onto the floor with their hand. They went right across the room and just swept all the personal items onto the floor like a hurricane. And the team came in the next day and turned on the lights and they thought that there was a, a, a microburst in the office because all of the items were all over the floor. And then what they would, as after looking, they found that the only items on the floor were the personal items. And then sure enough, the managers walked in the room and introduced themselves, which is a great way to build psychological safety mm -hmm. uh, to walk in and say, Hey, I just destroyed your family photo. Um, and that was, so that was the, that was their practice was they just went in and sort of swept it off the desk. Um, mm -hmm. And you look, I mean, that's, that, that's just horrible. And actually what ended, up, what ended up happening, which was funny was this company allowed tissue boxes. They said that you can have Kleenex on your desk, probably because they were crying all the time, uh, but they allowed Kleenexes on the desk and tissue boxes. And so the team as a sort of uh, um, uh, uh, act of uh, not revenge, but just um, they, they, they uh, all bought these sort of crazy colored tissue boxes. So they would get like glittered tissue or like you just really ornate and extravagant Kleenex boxes and put that on their desk as an act of, uh, uh, yeah, in response to, um, to, to the team. So uh, the manager. So it was uh, like all you walked in and it was these really sterile, like sort of gray, tan, blue office environment with like a bedazzled Kleenex box on every desk. Um, so, uh, but it, you know, it's, it, it's, the idea that they had to, I mean, that's, that's just horrific to think that that happened, but unfortunately that's when we were writing the book and for trying to find these stories of, of corporate bad actors and these middle managers who really had this idea of like cracking the whip. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we had too many stories that we had to cut as opposed to finding too few that we needed to, you know, try to include. It was just, we had so many examples. What, what, what's the thinking there? Like, why would somebody want to do that? Like, what's the sense? Like, okay, long-term, what do they think would, how what would the benefit be? It's the idea is that employees are not individuals in some organizations. They're just, it's human resources. It's just like a desk, like a chair. These are resources from which you extract value and mm -hmm. they are replaceable and you can continue to extract value even when they are replaced. So it's not a view of an individual person. It's a view of this is a resource that I am using to make a profit and I am going to treat them as I would treat um, that stapler, as I would treat the chair, as I would treat the, you know, the computer, um, and they're interchangeable, replaceable. Uh, I have no, um, I, no sense of connection or community with these people at all. They're not people. They're just my employees. Wow. And, and that is, um, uh, that is far more common than uh, you know, you'd you know, like to probably admit. I think it's, it's, we see it a lot. And there, look, there are some companies who, who do a good job of, of, of respecting their employees and treating them well, but it's, it's probably the exception now. I mean, companies are getting into these, just this highly, it's almost cliche. It's like these highly corporate sterilized, um, you're an employee, you're a resource from which I extract value and um, I'm going to replace you if, if you crack and you're, you're inevitably going to, you're going to break, uh, you're either move up or out and um, we'll find someone else. Wow. And it, what's a shame about that is, um, and this is just not even outside of the workplace, when you set an expectation for someone, uh, especially if you're uh, viewed as in, in terms of status as superior, so like a, let's say a middle level manager, uh, a lot of people under you are going to try to be as congruent as possible to the identity that you put out for them. So 
you have a tremendous responsibility as somebody's um, superior to craft as best of an identity as you can for the people that are working under you. Of course, there are going to be some strong-minded people uh, who are, you know, they're they're going to have uh, they're going to exercise their own agency. They're going to be free thinkers, critical thinkers, nuanced thinkers. Sure, but that's not going to be the case with every single employee, especially an entry-level um, employee. Not to put that kind of expectation onto somebody. It's just something that you you may observe, right? Um, so I, I wonder what the uh, possibilities are if, if, for example, if these uh, middle-level managers or, or these uh, big companies actually had greater expectations for their employees. What, what are the possibilities then, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of culture can you create? What kind of company can you create? Where right. can you go? Yeah. It's, so that's what's, what's so um, peculiar about the whole thing is that we've gotten into this mindset of dehumanization and gotten into this mindset of it's, it's the numbers that matter. We've got to hit our quarterly results. I don't care about the individuals. But what Google found and what other organizations have found through their you know, uh, behavioral scientists have found through research is that this idea of psychological safety is actually the, the indicator of performance. So you're going to perform better if you build psychologically safe teams, then if you were to swipe things off desks. So you might think, oh, well, look, look, it's, this is just the nature of the beast. This is business. I'm sorry. It's cold. It's brutal. But um, we got we got to hit our numbers. And this is how we do it. You know, it's just that at the end of the day, bottom line is what matters. I understand numbers are important and you need to be profitable. And we're not saying you shouldn't be profitable. But the way to actually be more profitable is to build a psychologically safe environment than, you know, destroying uh, your employee's photo of her son. Um, you're, you're more likely to have a positive outcome from from engaging in, in think talk create than you are in destroying a photograph. And it's uh, so companies who are talking about, well, geez, we want to be innovative. We want to be, you know, uh, thought leaders. We want to be forward thinking. Um, some of it might just be just they're bloviating or there might be just, uh, you know, it's hot air. They're just saying those, the corporate, those buzzwords, like we want to be an innovative company. We want to be a forward thinking company. We want to be a, a nimble, agile. I've heard, you know, all these, all these terms that they use that try to excite uh, shareholders. Um, but if you actually want to be an innovative and creative company, then practice think, talk, create, and build psychological safety. That's how you can actually grow and, and innovate new products and services. Like treat your people well, um, build psychologically safe, high trusting environments. Yeah, hold them accountable. I'm not saying that this means that they should, um, you know, go on vacation uh, 50 weeks of the year. But um, you know, if you if you build these high performing environments uh, through this through this process, you're more likely to have a positive outcome for the company and for the individual than you are if you practice this really, really harsh dehumanizing behavior that you've been doing for the last, uh, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, and that really makes me think of the dark triad when we're talking about this. So for uh, just for our audience, the dark triad is this, um, the notion of these three traits that kind of come in conjunction with one another when we're talking about psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and I think the third one was manipulativeness. So interestingly, it seems like, especially based on the company that would sort of do something like that, where they would just pretty much, you know, take, like kick off everybody's kind of personal belongings. It kind of seems like, again, going back to Kahneman and those biases that a lot of these bosses and that Machiavellian view that it's better to be feared than loved. A lot of these bosses think like, oh, you know, if we don't crack the whip, what's going to happen is they're going to walk all over us. They're going to abuse us. They're going to start forming their unions. They're going to start demanding things that they don't really deserve. So unless we kind of instill fear in them, right, we're going to kind of like beat the laziness in some way out of them. You yeah, feel like yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's just it's a it's a ridiculous notion that um, all of my employees are lazy or all of my employees, you know, need to be fearful of me. Um, that's absurd. Uh, I think employees can uh, look. The most rewarding relationships that I've had with managers are managers that I yeah I'm a little fearful of. No question. I said the White House. There were a couple of managers I had that I was terrified of, but mm -hmm. they were incredibly warm, um, incredibly thoughtful. And they, they really tried to build um, a, a trusting relationship with the team, a high-performing relationship with the team by engaging in, in, in open dialogue, open communication. You know, they, they, um, they really put Think Talk Create to heart. And um, it is, it, it's, 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 they're, not, they're not incompatible ideas. I can still be mindful and respectful of my manager. And to be honest, a little afraid of my manager and have the utmost respect for them and think, oh my God, this is the, this is the best boss I've ever worked for. Um, right. And, you know, there's a couple that come to mind that I, that I worked with who are just, and, you know, they were um, just remarkable, remarkable professionals who, uh, who 
the t- the team outperformed because they just had so much respect for this, this so much respect for them but they were also afraid of them right right and it's like it's as though fear is this nuanced concept because i could tell you guys so like um my college mentor who i'm still really close with so he was also a philosopher um so the thing is i'm actually afraid of him but not in the sense that you would be afraid i guess of a boss so like if i were afraid of my boss i'd probably be afraid of like getting fired or getting my hours cut which i've had happen multiple times with like really bad bosses where they would literally just get mad and be like we're cutting your hours so why i'm afraid of my mentor is i'm actually just afraid of letting him down so it's not like he's going to yell at me or like curse me out or anything, but I know the reaction that he's going to give me. So I will tell him that I did something and he'd be like, wow, I can't believe you did that, man. Like, he's like, I really expected better from you. And I'm like, no, I hate that so much. And it's like, you have like this gut-wrenching feeling like, oh my God, I want to just do anything that I can to make up for this. So I think like fear in that sense is a good thing, right? Because it's kind of helping you become the best version of yourself. Whereas obviously the other fear is pretty much punishment based and I couldn't give a shit about my boss. I just don't want my hours come. Absolutely. Yeah. That idea of, um, yeah, the, it's funny. Like your parents say, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. That was always so much worse than mad. I'd rather mad. Um, <laughs> and it's the same thing. Yeah. With managers who you have that level of respect for who you're also a little fearful of, but it's that fear of, geez, I don't want to let this person down. I don't want them to be upset with us because, we, because we let them down. Um, you know, I want to have a good outcome here. So I'm going to, you know, do my darndest to, tr- to try to make this work. And that's because that manager cultivated that relationship with us. And we knew that she had our back and we, you know, we, it was, it was very present in our minds that we were, you know, we were working in conjunction with her and that this was going to reflect poorly on her if we didn't do a good job. Um, and then she could get fired and then, you know, we'd be with a, a terrible manager. So, um, yeah, the, the, the high, it's funny you say that, the, yeah, the high performing relationships that I've had and the environments that I've worked in has always been with a manager to your point that you're, you're not fearful of in the sense of, oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to let me go tomorrow or, or they're going to yell at me or anything like that. It's more of a, I'm, a, I'm afraid of her being disappointed in what we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's far more of a motivator for me than forgetting because yeah, if I've, I've worked with bosses that are, that are not pleasant and I could really care less, you know, I am not, if, if I'm not motivated to help you, you're not, there, there's no, there's no drive here for me to help you. Um, but if you're a manager who, yeah, who, who cultivates that type of psychologically safe relationship, then I'm, I am more motivated to help you. Yeah. And just to maybe pivot a little bit, um, what would you say for uh, people or in the context of work um, who are kind of dealing with uh, burnout or uh, motivation issues in the context of, um, you know, the pandemic uh, in terms of they're, they're not doing what they used to be doing. They're not uh, necessarily traveling to work. If somebody was taking the train or, or their car, their whole routine was disrupted. Um, yeah, what, what, would you, what would you say? Uh, how, how could somebody sort of deal with, um, let's say, burnout? Yeah, it's a real problem. And even without the pandemic, burnout's an issue in organizations. I, we all experience it from time to time. I experienced it plenty of times. Um, but with the pandemic happening uh, upon us, and it seems to not be getting better, it's going to be worse before it gets better. Um, there is this, yeah, this, this, there can be an overwhelming sense of dread, of fear, of, of anxiety, of panic, of, and just uh, all of those emotions and all those feelings and sensations just come together and loneliness. And they can sort of um, uh, form this 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 feeling of burnout, of being just sort of drained and, and done with it all, and um, lost. And I would say, the uh, look at the, the at a at a baseline level, get you know if there's if if you need to have a conversation with a mental health professional, have that conversation. You know, get help. It it, it does it does work. Um, for it, it it is a it is a benefit. So, if you're feeling like you need to talk to somebody talk to somebody, you know, have that conversation with, um, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a, um, social worker, whoever, you know, whoever you can have a, a chat with, um, you could even text into crisis text line, CTL, you know, 741741, and it's an anonymous texting service and you can get support services. Um, and it's completely anonymous and you can, ha- you can chat with a crisis counselor who will help walk through some of your burnout issues and, and, um, and you can just talk, you know, talk through some of the thoughts you're having. So at, at a baseline level, if you're feeling the need that you need to reach out to somebody, please do reach out to somebody. Um, uh, then from there, I would say, you know, the, you can look at this a couple of different ways. Practice active inquiry with yourself a little bit and say, well, what are the things that are causing me to feel burnt out? Is it, geez, what am I doing and why am I doing it? So we're talking about career related issues. Is it 
I feel really lonely and um, I'm feeling kind of isolated and now I miss my colleagues. So is it more of a social element of burnout? Um, is it um, anxiety driven? Is it, it's this fear of the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm tired of not knowing what's going to happen next quarter. Are we going to be laid off? Are we not going to be laid off? Um, so it's more um, procedural uh, burnout, if you will. You know, burnout can take lots of different directions and lots of different shapes. So I would say the first thing is, um, if you need help, talk to somebody. But the second thing is, try to practice active inquiry yourself and figure out, well, what are some of the feelings and the thoughts that I'm having that are causing me to feel burnt out? And then try to address them in that, in that sequential process. So let's take, for example, the, the I feel lonely, which is a common one. Folks are not dissatisfied with their job. Like I can, I can think of plenty of examples of uh, folks that I know and I'm friends with who love their work, but they're feeling really, really isolated now because they're sitting in their kitchen for the eighth month in a row and in their slippers, you know, on, on the phone, they're feeling, they're feeling kind of as though they're on an island. So there's steps that you can take to try to rebuild that sense of community. Sure, we're not probably going to be sitting in an office in the near future, in the immediate future, but maybe there's something you can do, whether it's watching, I, I watched um, the new Borat movie with a friend of mine over Amazon's uh, share link. So you can watch it together. Um, you know, there's things that you can do with, uh, with your peers and maybe there's things you can set up to arrange or sort of reinvigorate that sense of community that you had. Maybe it's um, a game night over Zoom or maybe it's um, you know, something fun and something not work-related. I think we're all sort of Zoomed out a little bit um, as far as work meetings go, but there's, there, there are a number of creative things that, that uh, are steps that you can take that would maybe help just, just sort of um, make you feel a little bit more connected. And so um, that's, you know, like I said, that, that's probably the, the, the core of it is that if you need help, talk to somebody without question, but just try to engage in active inquiry with yourself and figure out, well, what is it that's causing me to feel burnt out? And I'll, and you know, too, you're not alone. I mean, we're, we're all experiencing this, this sense uh, to some degree over, you know, depending upon how long the day is, um, uh, it feels with the news cycle, some days can be longer than others in 2020, but um, yeah, just, just practice active inquiry with yourself and figure out which direction burnout's taking and then, you know, try to address it in a sequential process. Yeah. And so Ryan, what fascinated me most about your work was your practical use of philosophy. So can you tell us a little bit about your, pretty much your background in it and how you ended up merging philosophy with consulting? Yeah. So I had I philosophy undergrad and went into graduate school with the full intent of going into academia. I was going to get the PhD and, and become an academic. And when I was at school, there was a program um, that in DC that I could go and, and try to take advantage of and, and uh, because it was a two year window. So Chicago had this really great, great idea where if you were on the PhD track, you could take the master's degree, leave for two years and come back to do the PhD if you wanted to. It was really a great sorting tool. It was a great way to weed out folks who weren't committed to the PhD. Um, and so I took that route of uh, going for two years, took the master's degree, had every intention of coming back to do the PhD, and then went into DC to work in government, uh, so, you know, spent time at the White House and did uh, sort of my, you know, re real world work, if you will, not that the government's real world work in that sense, it's, it's, it's sort of its own bubble, but um, I saw, you know, what a professional career looked like, and I thought, oh, man, this is pretty interesting, and I found that I was using philosophy more than I thought I would. I, you know, I went in there with kind of imposter syndrome thinking, well, I'm not qualified to do anything because I have a philosophy degree. But actually what I found is that apart from surgery, I was qualified to do pretty much anything um, with my philosophy degree because there's, it's, there, the, the skills that you develop are so foundational to every single professional <laughs> um, track you can possibly think of. Um, and so I was really relying on philosophy quite a bit in government. And then um, I, a lot of the folks I worked with happened to be management consultants. We had a lot of McKinsey folks um, in DC. We had um, a number of other organizations as well. And so I went into consulting afterwards thinking, uh, well, I can, I can keep doing this. I can keep putting philosophy to work. And, and sure enough, I was, I was thinking critically. I was, you know, building strategy. Um, and I thought, uh, well, maybe there's a way, there's something to this. There's something, you know, there's, there's, there is something here. And that's when coincidentally, I got that article from a friend of mine who I actually worked with in DC, the philosopher Kings article that said business leaders would benefit from studying great writers. And it was called, the article, uh, was called philosopher Kings. 
and I thought, yeah, there actually is something here in combining philosophy and business. And that's, that, that was when the light bulb went off to start the company. And what it was, was how do we take the skills of philosophy and inject them into the professional world? Like, how do we put them in? Um, how do we, how do we, you know, how, how can I translate my experience of working um, in government in the private sector and David's experience of working in the private sector in medicine? Because um, he has a philosophy degree as well. You know, how do we take this and, um, and, and transition it in, into uh, uh, a you know, a professional um, consulting service. And we, uh, we, we, I can't tell you how many e emails we get from folks who are, you know, philosophy students now or having studied philosophy and they think, geez, I can't, how do I position myself or how do I sell myself as in the professional world? I have no, I have no skills, you know, that I can, that I can put on my resume. But the reality is you have a ton of skills and the professional world should recognize and appreciate that. I've found that my managers who knew I studied philosophy actually hired me because I studied philosophy, not in spite of it. And so can you kind of link that to the concept of think, talk, create and how you guys came up with that? Yeah. I mean, philosophy is, uh, look, Socrates was, is the, the, the godfather figure of philosophy for those uh, who are, who are fearful of the subject. Socrates is kind of like the, um, yeah, he's the, he's the, he's the, there were philosophers before him, but he's, the, he's ultimately the guy. He's the one who we all look to. He's who Plato wrote about. And Socrates was this kind of cranky, this um, oddball who would hang around the marketplace in his town and would engage in active inquiry, Socratic dialogue with folks around the city. And he would ask questions like, what is justice and what does it mean to love? And what, you know, what these really high-minded concepts and lofty ideals. <clears throat> and he would have these conversations with peers and he would ultimately help them realize that they don't know everything they think they know so if they think they have a, a concept of justice his form of questioning would help them understand that maybe they should rethink what their concept of justice is or love is or piety or what have you um and so active inquiry is really what socrates did he practiced the socratic dialogue that's what the the the, the academic method that teachers still use is called the socratic method it's asking open-ended questions to students to help them um you know kind of reach the conclusion on their own and that's what we're bringing to business. I mean, Think Talk Create is the process of engaging in active inquiry, engaging in Socratic dialogue. It's really just a translation of philosophy. It's bringing philosophy to the professional world. It's thinking, it's talking, it's creating, which is exactly what the philosophers did. Um, they would Think Talk Create with their with uh, with their community. Yeah, we and hope, kinda... sorry, we just we just hope no. it worked out better for us than it did for Socrates because he ultimately <laughs> was executed. But um, we uh, we don't want that to happen. But um, well, I mean, I think I think the difference with Socrates is there was so much hubris involved. Where I mean, he pretty much he had loaded and leading questions, which um, from our yeah. conversation with David, I remember, which was a point that I really liked about him and obviously your work together is that he said pretty much like I don't have an answer in mind when I'm asking people questions, right? Kind of we have maybe some ideas, I guess, but the idea is that whatever answer they come up with is good enough. I'm not going to just directly start challenging them. Not his words, mine. But the idea is like with Socrates, I mean, he was kind of like an asshole when he'd go around questioning people like he was like like how do, like you kind of had the you felt his aura of superiority it was kind of like yes. don't you already know this yes we're not suggesting we, so we're loosely drawing from socrates we're not yeah. we're not saying go be socrates because that would be grounds for you would be fired if you were a socrates in your workplace because you would be the guy <laughs> or the gal walking around the water cooler saying you know why well, hey, what is you know what is what is capitalism and then you know and then all of a sudden it just deteriorates from there you just be annoying people. That's ultimately what he did. He annoyed people. And so we're not saying that you should go in there. And to your point too, I mean, one of the, the uh, fun facts about Socrates is that what we know about him is that it was written from, a, a, was from written by Plato. Socrates didn't write anything down. These are secondhand accounts of somebody who was allegedly there, who was recording what was going on. Chances are it wasn't exactly what was going on. And Plato has the, has the, the benefit of time and reflection where he can adjust the question so that they're so perfectly constructed and the responses are so perfectly given that Socrates can sort of walk along this path. But it's not like an audio recording where this is, and he's just transcribing what's going on. This is Plato engaging in a work of, not fiction, but he's, he's writing a dialogue that's like a play a bit. And um, he's still practicing philosophy and showing what Socrates did, but I'm sure it was edited after the fact to, to fit what Plato was trying to accomplish. So Socrates, as we know him, is really a caricature of the real guy. It's, it's what Plato created um, in his writing, and it's, it is a bit of a character. So uh, what we took from that is not, you know, we don't want to go into companies and be Socrates, certainly not. But what we can do is 
take some of the things that he did and use some of those transferable skills in the professional world, like asking open-ended questions. There, you know, the the steps that he took, um, <clears throat> like asking open-ended questions, that is actually useful in building psychological safety and helping drive organizational performance. So it's not like we're staying religiously to philosophy. It's just what are some of the what are some of the transferable skills we can extract from philosophy and apply in business. Right. And would you say kind of the most important part or one of the most important parts of the work that you guys do kind of relates to the sense of wonder and instilling curiosity and kind of, um, I guess, your clients or, you know, your customers, however you would frame it. So um, would you say that like kind of the goal of this job or one of the main goals of this job is to just get people to be curious about their mindsets and their behaviors and how they affect other people? Uh, I would say that's 100% the goal of the job. I think that's a bit, we don't necessarily say that anywhere on the website and maybe we're being subversive about it, but um, I think if you can reflect upon the work you're doing and, and yeah, have that curiosity and that sense of wonder, um, it, what's important is, you know, how are you, how are you interacting with the community? How are you interacting with those around you? How are you serving your customers? How are you um, uh, a part of this broader world that we're in? I think ultimately, yeah, our, our, our subversive goal is to, is to build more ethical environments, you know, so if you can engage in active inquiry and reflect upon the work you're doing, maybe we shouldn't be poisoning the well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, engaging in, um, in climate destruction and, and, uh, for, you know, it, there's, we're hoping that, uh, by bringing philosophy to the world of work that, uh, not only are companies going to be performing better and our and individuals are going to be, feel more, um, more rewarded as a result of going to work every day because they're 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 doing work that matters and they're going to feel a sense of purpose and they're they're they, you know they have these high performing teams and it's a great environment and they're feeling positive. These are all absolute benefits, no question. But I think yeah, ultimately for, you know for us we'd love to see a, a more ethical world as well, and philosophy can help deliver that. Yeah. And adding on to that, I also wonder why do these companies struggle so much with long-term thinking? Like when we're talking about high turnover rates, destruction of the environment in the long term, like I'm wondering, because for us, it's like, you know, we're talking about it and it's probably easy for us to see how come these companies that I'm sure they know about it, they I mean, it's impossible not to, how do they just kind of, how do they live with that? So it, there's a historical answer to this and not to bore you with it, but based <laughs> the, the the short version of the story is that what happened is, is shareholder thinking took hold. So you have Friedman and Jensen and these other, so primarily Milton Friedman. So you have this idea that, um, so previously CEO pay was separate from company performance. So a CEO had a stable salary and shareholders were independent from the CEO. Hmm. What this, what ultimately happened was that there was a shift in thinking um, put forth primarily by Milton Friedman that said, um, well, geez, we really should be aligning CEO pay with shareholder pay because they should be rewarded for, the company performing and then we want to make sure the shareholders want to make sure that the ceo is aligned with them because they want to make a much much a profit as possible so what happened is ceo pay switched and instead of getting a stable salary the ceo would be paid based on how the company performed relative to how the shareholders did so if the shareholders did well the ceo did well and it, on paper it actually kind of makes sense like okay well we should be incentivizing the ceo this is behavioral economics we should be incentivizing the ceo to align their priorities with ours, ours being the shareholders. Problem is, is that the numbers got so, so high and got so out of control as far as the number of zeros on the end of um, compensation relative to regular employees. Um, uh, and also the duration of CEOs in office. Uh, so typically a CEO lasts about five years. So if you think about uh, CEO's trajectory at a, at a large scale organization, um, they're not necessarily looking at the 20 year plan or the 25 year plan or the 30 year plan for these shareholders. They're looking at their own pockets for the next five years. And obviously what they're going to receive when they retire, what's that golden parachute look like for them. Mm -hmm. um, so what they want to do is they want to maximize profit and extract the maximum amount of value in the short window of time they have as CEO. And that just sort of funnels through the organization. And we have this short termism. We have this ultra, yeah, it's, it's all about quarterly results and hitting the numbers and metrics because um, the shareholders want that, that return on, 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 uh, on value. But really what should matter is not just, yeah, short-term growth is important, but do you want to be a company in 20 years or 30 years? Um, I, I hope so. But I, I think shareholders have the mindset of, no, it's, it's here and now. I want my money now. I'm going to maximize value. And CEOs have, are aligned based on their pay cut by their pay structure and compensation. And, um, and that, so that was the shift. Wow. Out of curiosity, um, what would you say is, 
one of the greatest challenges that you might uh, face as a as a consultant when doing change work with uh, with your clients in the sense that uh, let's say let's say a client comes to you and they're attempting to um, change their um, company culture. They're trying to um, learn new leadership skills, right? Yeah. And let's say it's somebody who um, doesn't take feedback very well. It's somebody who's a little stubborn, right? What um, what's what's the biggest challenge you've seen with trying to get them to embrace the uh, that feedback so this way they can actually internalize and learn these new skills? Because there are some people you can tell them, oh, in order to be a, a great leader, you, you need to be co concerned with psychological safety in, in the company, uh, care about uh, your your employees, uh, care about how they feel, all that. Some people will just be like, oh, okay, that, that's what you're supposed to do. Okay, good. All I need to know was what are the rules? Some people won't take that. Uh, what's your experience with that? So we talk about this in the book. There's a, there's a story of a guy that um, David actually had worked with who um, was a sort of a virtuoso uh, legal mind in his company. And he had worked his way up the ladder through a re just a remarkable skill and talent and knowledge on in his particular field and subject. Um, and ultimately what happened was he became uh, uh, sort of a, a like a, a SVP or v, he became a, a deputy manager. He wasn't he wasn't in the C-suite yet, but he was in his 30s and he was at the almost near the top of the company and he had just you know he just outperformed everybody every year. However, what he found was that all of a sudden he started to get passed over and passed over and passed over and passed over for promotion. And he was on this rocket ship trajectory early and then he, he just sort of expected that it would continue. And then what he found is he sort of hit a ceiling and he was the kind of guy who would roll his eyes in meetings, who would say, no, you guys can't do this. I'll just do this myself. Uh, who wasn't, this idea is terrible. I have, I'm, it's my idea, my way of the highway. Um, you know, he was very much, uh, I know what's best because look, look at where it got me so far. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing it my way. Um, and so he was very combative. He was not collaborative in any way, shape or form. Um, very close minded. Um, but deeply committed and passionate to his job. I mean, he really loved the company and wanted to grow the company and wanted to help it be successful. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, somebody who was, you know, in it only for himself. He really did genuinely care about the organization. He just had a completely backwards mindset about how to how the company would benefit. And so when David went in and, and um, met with him, uh, the way it was communicated was, look, if, if, you know, this adjustment, this sort of mindset shift that we're going to try to instill here, it's going to help the company, no question about it. And there's all of these benefits of the the team is going to feel more, you know, uh, more psychologically safe. You're going to see high, higher levels of performance. You're going to see more collaboration. That's all true. Yes, um, but you're also going to be more successful as well. Individual, you will get that promotion if you do this. Like it was, you know, not a guarantee, but like we can almost guarantee that if you start to see these shifts, if you start to change in these ways, and um, you know, have that mindset shift it's going to benefit you personally as well. And so that, um, that aligning that motivation for him was really helpful. And we were able to adjust the mindset, put, put Think Talk Great into practice. And he sure enough got the promotion within two years. Like, I mean, it was, it, and the people reported that he was um, receptive to, to ideas. He was creative, he was innovative, he was collaborative. Um, you know, he was, uh, it was a complete mindset shift for him. So it was just a, a aligning that look at his goals and objectives were not dissimilar from the company's goals and objectives. And we could put those two together and say, Hey, you can be more successful. The company can be more successful. The team can be more successful if you do this. So, um, let's give it a shot. Cause it wasn't what was clear, like what he was doing wasn't working. Like, I mean, we were brought in for a reason. It wasn't David was there, not because it was, he happened to bump into him on the street. Like he was brought in for a reason. So, um, sure. It was remedial in that sense. Like, yeah, it was, they had a problem with this employee they needed to figure out what to do. Cause if, what I recall is that he was, uh, not necessarily going to be fired, but he was, I mean, they were, they weren't sure what to do because he couldn't move on given his personal, uh, challenges that he was having, having. So, um, yeah, David going in and, and, and really putting things talk great to work, helped him and helped the organization. And, and they, they had glowing reviews after that. He's completely different. 
Wow. And that's also flattering, right? To have like a company invest something like that into you. I mean, like, that's amazing. Yeah, a lot with, with particularly with executive coaching and even with development programs for, for, for organizations. I mean, companies that do that, employees notice, I tell the story all the time where there was a company that we uh, had talked to a number of years ago. This is probably four or five years ago. Um, and a colleague of ours was actually doing this work. And it was a, a large organ, a large financial services organization, uh, global financial services organization, massive one. And they had a particular call center and this call center had 100% turnover every year. So every single year, they were losing 100% of their employees. So just think about that for training and investment and retention. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot. And the management finally recognized there was a problem here. Maybe there was an issue here. Uh, we had 100% of our team leaving. And they did a survey they they went in and they communicated with the team members and they asked questions and they said okay we're going to we're going to do something to address this just from saying that they were going to address it not doing anything yet just just saying they were going to address it they had a 25 percent increase in retention Mm -hmm. so just the employees knowing that management was aware of it was enough for 25 percent of the people to stay and then once, you know, inevitably the year later when they did do the program, then, you know, that the, the retention rates went up even further. So it's, uh, it's when, when companies take that time to, uh, it's not even, it's silly to say invest in an employee. Like how much does a development program cost relative to the employee and relative to the, the you know, the potential benefit you're going to get from their productivity increases? Like it's not, a, it's, a, it's a drop in the bucket uh, as far as an investment is concerned for, for a large company to bring in either an executive coach or a development company and, and work with team members. And the, the benefits are just, it can be, can be massive. And so uh, it's, it, yeah, it's just crazy to think that and employees recognize that like employee, I've worked in places where if, if you know that management's aware of the challenges is aware of some of the problems, you just feel more likely to sort of either stick it out or work through it or fight through it or figure out how to, you know, um, um, build a better solution while, you know, um, while they're, while they're dealing with it as well. It's just like, just even that awareness can be hugely helpful. Yeah. What did you want to say? Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. To, to backtrack a little bit. Um, it, it is fascinating that when you identify what someone's goal is, right. Or, or what it is that they're, they feel is their purpose. Um, and they feel that you recognize that that sort of lets them let their guard down and allow for you to, you know, start to suggest certain things that they can do to change. I think that's very important, you know, not just in the workplace. Let's say an audience member is listening to this and maybe they, they have somebody in their family who's a little stubborn. They're trying to kind of reveal to them to themselves or something like that. Perhaps, yeah, be, being able to identify what it is that they want and maybe trying to align them uh, with that, that's, that's interesting. That could be one method to sort of get someone to, start to change a little bit yeah 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 and it doesn't have to be past the ball around the circle type of um the kumbaya we call it the kumbaya circle where it's like everyone sort of dreads it and you you eye roll at the idea of having to share your thoughts and feelings with your team members you know that's that's actually not what we're suggesting that's not what we do we don't sit in a circle and pass the ball around and have everyone tell their deepest darkest secrets it's not that type of it's not that type of program um or service it's um you know asking someone what their goals are um is a pretty straightforward business conversation. Like, Hey, where do you see yourself in five years? You know, you can ask it in a way that isn't, you know, tell me what makes you sad. No, it's, that's, that's not the type of questions we're asking. We're talking about, these are strategic business questions that you can ask that actually um, have a qualitative and quantitative benefit. And what was it like for that manager to admit that he was making a mistake in the way he was dealing with people? So it, what I think what was um, important is to not necessarily position it as, hey, what you're doing now is wrong. It's just how can we rethink this and do this better or do this differently? So um, I think, look, he knew that the reason why David was there was because the company was going to address, was needing needing to address something. So he knew there was some remedial nature to it uh, in some way, shape or form. But it wasn't like David was sitting there saying, God, you know, what you're doing is terrible. This is, this is awful. What you're doing is so wrong. We got to, we got to, we got to rethink this. It was, um, Let's do, let's do a mindset shift. So, you know, what are some limiting beliefs and behaviors that you have currently and how can we transition those into aspirational beliefs and behaviors and, um, and just try, it's, it's just basically trying a different strategy. Like, Hey, you know, the, the way you're doing things now, um, 
maybe you're not getting where you need to go in the in the right amount of time or it's not you know you're struggling to get there and so what, what what's another way we can get there okay excellent i love that all right alan final questions before we go man oh yeah uh, if you wanted to follow you follow your work uh, where, where could we find you the best place to go would be our website. So www.strategyofmind.com. Um, from there, you can follow our Twitter account, our LinkedIn accounts, respective personal LinkedIn accounts, um, Instagram. Um, uh, we have a podcast that we just launched this summer um, and our book will be coming out um, next fall and fall 2021. And it's called Think, Talk, Create. And you can sign up on our website to be subscribed and stay, stay updated about it. And um, we're, we're giving away free signed copies for folks who uh, a chance to win a free signed copy if they sign up for our uh, email list. Oh, that's awesome. I'm actually really looking forward to reading your book, man. Like I'm sold. I think it's going to be great. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'll have to send you guys a copy. Oh, awesome. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, maybe we can even have you back when the book comes out. That would be great. No, I'd love that. Okay. Awesome, man. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. This was such an insightful podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll be in touch soon, man. Take care. Bye. All right. That was awesome. Yeah. That was really fun. So guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit, hit the, the bell. bell. And then also you can find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us under the STM podcast section. Guys, again, thanks so much for watching and see you next time.